Welcome back, long-suffering listeners, to a uh, uh, much, much delayed and frequently rescheduled and uh, just like comedy of errors, uh, riddles in the dark, <laughs> brought to you by the Mythgard Institute and Signum University and the Tolkien Professor. Uh, we're sorry for the long delay that uh, and the sort of frequent sort of rescheduling and the uncertainty um, floating around this one. I think we like posted, okay, we're doing one tomorrow on Facebook, and then rescheduled it multiple times, and it's been like three months. Well, since I, the I last was episode. actually when I put it up on Riddles in the Dark, I say I tell people it's like until you see the Netmoot link, yeah, it's yeah. not absolutely confirmed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So you, so if you showed up for one so of I the, say we're thinking about it. If you showed up for one of the aborted episodes, you only have yourself to blame. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, we're sorry about that. Life's just been chaos for for all of us. Uh, Trisha's busy with work. Corey's got like a zillion things going on: moves, work stuff. Um, yes. uh, I have. I'm in the middle of conference deadline submissions again uh, in grad school. So hopefully this summer. Wow. I think this summer is going to be a little more sane for everybody. So I think this summer we'll Especially be able to get on to the it. latter half. Yes. Yeah. I now. I now. Uh, 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 officially have well i shouldn't say officially because i haven't had closing day yet but i officially have a new house uh so that's what i was busy with last week was firming that up so that is now firm and that's good delightful so yeah yeah Yeah, so and actually our timing is really good because apparently i've been reading at least rumors if not confirmed that the the new trailer is coming out with the man it's going to be part of the man of steel um showings and right. uh, and then of course we have Comic Con coming up what in July I think it is so yeah, right. Right. you know we'll, we're we're getting ourselves well positioned to be able to uh, you know deal yeah. with the flurry of information we'll be getting hopefully yeah so and I think a, the, the uh, uh, Jordan Brown texted me an image of a like a teaser poster or something that we weren't sure if it's real or a fan made it but uh, but it was like uh, what did, what was the caption it was something it said Desolation of Smog and it just had like a scenery shot and then it was like it couldn't come soon enough, or I don't know. I don't know if it was real or not, but uh, <laughs> right. J- Jordan was very excited. Well, I've been trying to think in the trailer. I don't know how much we'll see that's new to us. You know what I mean? Think about all the stuff we've already seen. We've seen the barrels. We've seen the Nazgul tombs. We've, you know, there's a yeah. bunch of stuff we've already seen. I'm unless hoping, they, I'm hoping they at show least us a, some stuff we haven't unless seen. Unless they show us a dragon or a necromancer or something. Uh, yeah, I don't <laughs> think there'll be – I mean, well, there might be – they might develop some things, but we won't see anything that will just be like, whoa, didn't see that coming. Right, exactly. I would expect some shots of Lake Town, which we haven't seen too much of. I mean, we, that's true. There was, yeah. there was that preview thing that that Jackson did recently, but other than that, there hasn't been much officially released um, as far as Lake Town stuff is concerned. True, true that. We have seen very little of Bjorn. Uh, yes. Well, yeah, we haven't really seen anything of Bjorn. We've seen an, yeah. an axe, basically. Right. Yeah, that 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 actually that could be like the main uncertainty, the main thing they could show us that we haven't really seen before. So that'll be interesting to see. Um, Some Merkwood shots, you know, there are definitely things that they can do. We'll we'll see a lot of Tauriel, but we've already seen a bunch of Tauriel. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're talking about things we want to see, Trish. Things we want to see. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, it's. I'm kind of uh, – it's, it's actually something that I'm going to be kind of amused to watch is, you know, the, the, the kind of uh, – well, somewhere between trepidation and revulsion with which uh, Tolkien fans are anticipating Toriel and her character and her role in the films. Um, 
and uh, it would just be I'd just be kind of interested to watch the to watch that kind of play out. I mean, I you know from the beginning have said about Toriel like I totally understand why they're doing it. I mean, they, they you know female roles are are, are by and large. A, a fine thing in a movie and the Hobbit doesn't have any. So it didn't surprise me that they would invent a female right. character. Mm-hmm. And I have said from the very first time that was released, you know, if you ask, if, if, you know, if you ask me, um, <laughs> if you have to invent a female character, they've, that's a good choice, you know, to, to invent another elf. The elves are really underdeveloped in the book. Yeah, I mean, we don't true. know much about the wood elves. We never really get to know them other than the Elven King a little bit in that one brief glimpse uh, into, I guess the br- two brief glimpses we get into Elvish life being their glimpses of the woodland feasts and then the, uh, the little, uh, you know, basically the stuff in the barrel hall, you know, the, 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 the drinking bout between the, the, the butler and the guard, and then the barrel elves and their songs. That's all we get about elven, you know, about, about the elves and, and their society and everything else. So, you know, giving us some more elf characters and some more time with elves on screen makes sense, and we need a female character, and they could easily do a female character there without doing any violence to the rest of the story. I mean, they don't have to do something dumb, like let's put a female dwarf into the party or they don't have to, you know, I mean, there's so many really horrible forced ways they could have done it. <laughs> they could have done it. That's true. So well, you know, actually, I mean, and, and yeah. for, for me, there's two things with her. One is for one of the, she's, you know, it all goes together. Core. I think for the story of the Hobbit course, I did a, my, my big paper was on the evolution of the Hobbit, you know, from, mm-hmm. from oral story on through. And so p- part of my research was to, to learn about how has the, how has the Hobbit been adapted for stage and screen in the past? Rankin Best at that point being the only one, but she, and I had a real fangirl reaction, fangirl of the book reaction when I was doing the research because I was just horrified to how people had adapted this book. You know, killing the dragon at the mountain. You know, you know, I mean, all, getting rid of Bjorn, getting rid of the Wood Elves. I mean, it's just horrible. So I thought, so I'm a little bit more happy with Peter that he's actually, you know, adding characters. <laughs> Rather than no. taking things away. But no, the other I'm... thing is that the Scott Holbrook Faust actually sort of slapped me on the wrist a little bit virtually today. Um, you know, Laura and I posed a digest conundrum uh, about, you know, and, and we probably need to shift it slightly. Brianna reminded me. But anyway, right now the way it stands is, will Tariel have feelings, quote unquote, for Legolas? <laughs> and Scott basically said, how sad, you know, basically that we have to, and it wasn't just to me, but it was generally, because, you know, the whole Keeley Tariel thing's already come out. How sad, yeah. you know, how great that we added a female character, but how sad that we have to then sort of evolve it into, will there be romance, just right. because there's a female character. What anyway, other role so. could she possibly <laughs> play, Scott? <laughs> <laughs> right. Though, I mean, though, you know, I mean, I, 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 certainly I appreciate Scott's question there. Really, the question though is just about the Hollywood percentages, though, right? I mean, yes, right. Like, what are the odds that a female character is added to an otherwise all-male cast and no and romance no question romance. enters in at any point? <laughs> uh, I mean, that seems a little unlikely, just given the Hollywood track record. But well, you figure the fanboys, you know, when they take their dates, there has to be something for the girls to appreciate, you know. And so that's how Hollywood that thinks. Seems to be the 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 you know the Hollywood framework anyway yep but um but you know i i um 
No, uh, but uh, Trish, getting back to your larger point, I, I really agree, and it's something I know that this is never going to be an argument that's going to really sway any Tolkien purists who hate the films. But my goodness, could it have been worse? You know, I oh, mean, oh God, it's. I mean, <laughs> there are so many things, and this is—I forget who it was who said this that I was talking to a while back, who said, you know, seriously, how many directors? Like, what percentage of directors, if they were going to undertake The Hobbit, would actually put all thirteen dwarves on screen? Yes. I mean, you've got to know that the first thing that almost any director would do would be like, okay, this is what? How many? Eight dwarves too many at least? You know, let's, let's, uh, let's cut out the ones who never get a line and the ones about whom we know nothing, and let's just make this into a band of maybe five or six. I mean, that's the obvious thing to do <laughs> when you're turning this into a film. Um, so just the mere fact that all of those things, which, which people are absolutely taking for granted and, and, and which, you know, for the, the stuff for which purists give Jackson no credit, uh, but I think he deserves a great deal of credit. I mean, there's so anyway, I, yeah, I, I think that that's, uh, that's certainly, true. um, so, so yeah, I, you know, Trish, as you say, giving examples from what other, from what other people oh. have done. I mean, it's, yeah. There are so many things that, like, just sort of coming from the kinds of complaints that people do about the choices that Peter Jackson has made, um, and it's it's again it's just it's it's it is it is like nothing. So anyway, backtracking to what I had been saying before about Toriel, <laughs> granted that they were going to introduce another woman, which seemed absolutely inescapable. Um, I I can I, I I can scarcely think of a less intrusive way to do it than they have. Than they have done. So, you know, I'm not gonna. I'm not. I mean, heck, they could have made Radagast female for crying out loud. Um, That's true. That's and, true. And that still would have been less invasive than some other things they could have done. <laughs> you know, I mean, look, let's let's have a female wizard figure. I could actually see that flying. You know, but uh, I, I I I could definitely see that as an idea. Anyway, lots of things. That and you know, happen. actually, uh, uh, by adding um, by adding in. Tariel, there's an outside chance that this might actually uh, pass the Bechdel test. Are you familiar with that? The What's Bechdel that? test. No, I'm not. It's a. It's a. I can't remember who invented it. It was like a, a female uh, movie reviewer. Oh, uh, her name's Allison Bechdel. Um, and uh, oh, it was popularized. Well, that must be her there name. we go. It was popularized <laughs> by. It was popularized by Allison Bechdel's comic Dykes to Watch Out For in a 1985 strip called The Rule. And the basic, basically, it's this really simple three-rule test that she made to deter to to say whether whether a movie is sort of you know like uh, is has legitimate um, uh, deep female characters or whether it sort of can be considered kind of a, a woman-friendly movie. And the three rules are: one, it has to have okay. at least two named women in it. Two who talk to each other. Three about something besides a man. And you would be shocked. <laughs> okay. You would be shocked <laughs> how many movies uh, in the history of cinema. You would be shocked by how few movies passed this. Like right. there are just so there have to be two named female characters who, who talk... speak only to each other at at least some point and talk about something other than men. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So by adding Toriel, I think it's unlikely. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's, the having a conversation with the other female character seems unlikely. Uh, but but if for some reason Gladriel, that's gonna be the trick. Hey, hey, maybe they'll show up. Uh, both show up at the Battle of Dol Guldur and talk some tactics. 
Uh, and then um... <laughs> that would count. <laughs> so anyway, maybe we should get on to today's topic. Um, yeah, uh, yeah and actually, well, today's topic. In it, and in fact, actually, yeah, what I should do is first uh, I should introduce us. So uh, this is Riddles in the Dark, and I'm your co-host Dave oh. Kale, and with me is Trish Lambert and the Tolkien professor Corey Olson. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> despite that lengthy introduction uh today's topic is actually not about toriel <laughs> or <clears throat> uh other things like that <laughs> today we're actually talking about uh the geopolitical sort of configuration of the northern world which i realize probably sounds really really like esoteric and complex and why aren't we talking about whether this character will be on screen that kind of stuff but <clears throat> we kind of wanted to get out of the uh I kind of wanted to get out of the following along with the story in chronological order uh, um, track we were on, especially because I think we're rapidly approaching the end of the second film, and we didn't want to we didn't want to go too far. But also, I think, yeah, in, in my opinion, I, I was the one that suggested this topic. I think this is some of the most interesting stuff um, about the Hobbit in general. Like, this is one of the areas where it where it connects to the larger um, legendarium and to the Lord of the Rings. This is one of the areas where it looks like Peter Jackson sort of making some some tweaks and changes and adding some things based on what we saw in the prologue. Um, I think that was, in my opinion, that was one of the richest stories storylines in the first film. This this sort of um, dwarven destiny of like let's go back and recapture our home and reestablish the kingdom. That it's not you know it's not like in the the sort of the the book where the dwarves are like let's go get our gold from the dragon. But but it's really more about reestablishing a dwarven homeland and that kind of stuff. So I, I think this stuff's super cool, and actually I, I expect most of um, Corey's listeners probably also will find it interesting, and it sort of, it, it, it plugs a little bit into the whole Game of Thrones zeitgeist too, since that's a very political show. So I'm excited about this topic. I'm excited to hear uh, what, uh, what people have to say. Right. No, I agree. I agree. I mean, I think this is this this kind of thing is an important issue because it really gets at one of the fundamental uh factors that are involved in the process of this film adaptation um and which is one of the things that I think it's so important for Tolkien fans to kind of keep in mind especially when people are just thinking about adaptation of the book meaning adaptation of the published hobbit because of course it's exactly this kind of thing that is the larger social cultural, you know, world-building framework around the Hobbit story, that's exactly the stuff that Tolkien put so much thought into in the years after The Hobbit was published. The Hobbit is itself really sketchy, and I think that people so often take this, uh, take this for, or don't take it for granted, they overlook this entirely because they are unconsciously projecting The Lord of the Rings back into The Hobbit. Um, you know all of this stuff in the background. Like, for instance, you don't pay attention, perhaps, to how sketchy is the geography between the Shire and Rivendell, because having read Book One of the Fellowship of the Ring, you know very well the geography between the Shire and Rivendell, as it's later going to be. And so you kind of, perhaps unconsciously, project that into, you know, including, for instance, the, the exact location of the Three Stone Trolls and everything else. So you know the geography retroactively. Um, and so perhaps you don't notice when you are reading The Hobbit that The Hobbit itself, by itself, seems to know very little of any of that stuff. And this is also true in these bigger picture questions of 
the lands of Middle-earth and how these larger things are set up. Um, these are things which were just not really fully developed at the time of The Hobbit, and he only developed later on. So when people talk about, you know, is it going to be true to the book, there's always been this question from the beginning. What exactly do you mean by that? Um, true to the book in the sense that it's going to tell the story almost in a vacuum, which the book kind of does. Again, the vacuum is filled in very effectively, retroactively, later on. But the book itself contains very, very little about those background things that we tend to fill in from our Lord of the Rings experience. Jackson doesn't have, really doesn't have that option. By doing the Lord of the Rings films first and then doing The Hobbit, he has got to place mm -hmm. the Hobbit story within the context that is established by The Lord of the Rings, as it, of course, was not when Tolkien <laughs> wrote The Hobbit 17 years prior to publishing The Lord of the Rings. So... Um, so these questions are things which have to be thought through uh, by Jackson in ways that Tolkien did not think through them at the time of writing The Hobbit, but did think through them later on. So to me, the question of, is Jackson staying true to the book, is a much more complicated question than how close is the story he's telling to what we learn in the published Hobbit. Being true to what Tolkien wrote involves Tolkien's later thinking in The Lord of the Rings, in the appendices of The Lord of the Rings, uh, in The Quest of Erebor, and in some of the other things that he you know, thought about and the letters that he wrote and uh, even his mercifully aborted attempt in 1960 to rewrite The Hobbit in the style of The Lord of the Rings. Um, so, you know, all of these things, when you take all of these things into account, that is, in my book, you know, what Tolkien wrote about The Hobbit. And so when I'm asking, when I'm asking the question, is Jackson being true to what Tolkien wrote, that's what I'm kind of comparing to. Now, with the, with the sort of the geopolitical issues, to me, one of the biggest questions, and there are a lot of things that we can talk about, and I think we should save for another episode the question of, like, the geopolitical situation of the bad guys, uh, because that's a big question in itself, too. Um, and we've touched on it some, what's going on with the necromancer and what kind of operation is he really running in Dol Guldur and all that stuff. But... The main thing we wanted to focus on here today is what is the geopolitical situation around the Lonely Mountain? Um, and let me kind of sketch for that, sketch in the, the sort of the issues, especially as they relate to, um, especially as they relate to the Lonely Mountain and uh, uh, the story as we get it in the published book. Um, there is this the question of the kingship under the mountain, um, of you know the dwarven king returning and becoming king under the mountain, seems to imply in the published Hobbit more than just the recovery of his, you know, halls beneath the lonely mountain, um, but of the reestablishment of a larger political order throughout that entire region. Um, the actual political details of this are quite unclear to me. Um, was the situation as it is described in the book, is it conceived to be the king of the dwarves and Girion of Dale uh, and the elven king are all have no official political affiliation other than being neighbors and friendly to each other? Or is there a kind of overlordship implied in the depiction of the king under the mountain? And there is nothing that I can recall which explicitly suggests in the book that there was that kind of an official political 
rulership, that like the king of the dwarves had some kind of actual official suzerainty over the land roundabout. Um, I don't see anything that actually suggests that. Uh, uh, Gurion was king in Dale. Uh, the word king is used. There's nothing said about him swearing fealty to the king under the mountain. And so, so there's, no, there's no actual evidence that there was any kind of a feudal relationship um, between the king under the mountain and the king of Dale. But there is a general sense of the kingship under the mountain having far more of an impact on the region as a whole than simply the establishment of you know the dwarven kingdom and its armies the fall of the of the kingdom of the dwarves was clearly the collapse of the entire region and the restoration of the king of the kingdom under the mountain will lead to the restoration of the entire kingdom so at the very least in a kind of mythic sense the book does seem to me to suggest a kind of you know the king and the land are one <laughs> sort of, you know, as goes the kingship under the mountain, so goes the rest of the, of the land. Um, even to the extent of having this, you know, the, the desert blight from the presence of the dragon um, marring the entire countryside roundabout, um, you know, that, that, that is kind of emanating out from the, uh, from the mountain in some kind of sense seems to me like the opposite of what we see later on with the cleansing and the prosperity which comes because surely the prosperity that comes from the mountain is much more uh, is, is much more complicated as well as much less tangible than simply uh, rivers of gold flowing out of the mountain as is suggested by the people of Lake Town. So that's one factor that I think. Another thing is the way in which uh, on at least two occasions, people are talking to Thorin about his duties as king and are and and are primarily concerned with his relationship with the humans and the elves and here i 'm thinking of Roach and Gandalf Roach, who says that he would like to see the kingdom established reestablished as it was of old, by which he seems to mean in amicable partnership with their human allies that for Roach the King, you know, the heir, the long-lost heir of the dwarves returning and re-establishing himself as king, that's not going to be, in Roach's eyes, the actual restoration of what was before if he comes back and is at war with the human enemies. There's something, there's, there's a way, with their human allies, their human neighbors, there's a way in which that, um, that kingship will remain un- uh, unfulfilled, unrealized, if that were to happen. The other is Gandalf's rebuke of Thorin at the gate, uh, you know, in the Descendant of Rats scene, when Gandalf says that he's not making a very fine figure as king under the mountain. Um, and clearly what he is criticizing is his treatment of both his followers, in the person of Bilbo in that case, uh, and also of his of those who should be his friends and allies. Thorin is not acting like a king, and how a king would be acting is not just thinking about his own wealth and his own vengeance and his own rights, uh, but thinking about uh, thinking about distributing wealth and thinking about being being a blessing to those around him rather than uh, taking what is owed to him and refusing to give anything more, um, which seems to be the way in which, in which Thorin is thinking. 
Um, again, those are kind of those are those are sort of vague references. Again, there's no reference to any kind of actual overlordship in place. Um, but I certainly am left with a very strong impression that the kingship under the mountain is the is the keystone of the entire region politically, and that even if Girion of Dale didn't actually get down on one knee and swear fealty before the king of the dwarves, um, nevertheless. Uh, he was, in a sense, a kind of client king of the uh, of the of of the kingdom under the mountain, um, and that the restoration of the land, um, broadly understood, it's not just about like let's get rid of Smaug and rebuild the halls under the mountain. The whole blessing of the land comes from having the king back, and the entire region is prospered, um, not just through directly through the treasure. Uh, but more intangibly, more mythically, through the return of the proper king. So, I mean, in my book, I was making sort of jokes about the fact that there is a way in which what we're getting in in The Hobbit, in, in chapter 10 and forward, is a return of the king story. And that there actually are, if you look at it, there actually are parallels between Thorin in his return and Aragorn in his return to Gondor. Um, and so that kind of element, and thinking about the way what the return of the king to Gondor means to all of the other parties, or you know, to Rohan, what it means, uh, you know, even thinking about Faramir as a kind of as a sort of semi-independent figure, you know, what it means to 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 uh, to Dal Amroth, you know, to Prince Imrahil, um, you know, again, it's not explicitly the same relationship. Uh, you know, with Gondor, we do get an explicit overlordship relationship between them and the Rohirrim and uh, and 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 all the others but um, obviously the Faramir um, but again it's it strikes me that there are there are quite a lot of parallels to the way that that is presented though it's it's presented less forcefully in the Hobbit obviously uh, than in the return of the king um, Corey so we do get that sense of it yeah uh, out of curiosity what is the what is the political what is what is the political arrangement or do we know the political arrangement Following the Battle of Five Armies, when when Dain becomes king under the mountain and Bard restores the kingdom of Dale, leading up to the um, leading up to the time of um, uh, you know the the War of the Ring, it's it seems it, do we have sort of the vassal relationship between Dale or King Under the Mountain or or I mean it's it sounds interesting it, it, you get hints of that when they're talking about. Um, when they're you know when they're talking about sort of the at the Council of Elrond and then even um, in Gandalf's yes. description of the, of the the battles up by the by the Lonely Mountain, but not quite because when they're talking about the the emissaries from Sauron, um, you know, pushing them yes. for news of Bilbo, you, you get the you know they, there's this line where um, Glowen says that he's that Dine's worried that um, I guess it's King Brand at that time. Uh, it yes. might yield. And so you have the sense that the dwarves, it's not like the dwarves can tell them, it's not like they're vassals where the dwarves can tell them, keep your mouths shut, don't say anything. You know, the the, the men of Dale right. obviously right. have some agency there. Um, yes. And then and then also we get this, you know, sort of uh, emotional description of, of, of Dain um, standing over the body of King Bran wielding his axe. So that's pretty an, inter an interesting idea of the, the dwarf king sort of defending the, the, you know, putting his life on the line to defend the 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 uh, the king of Dale. So, what what is the sort yes. of the political situation afterward? Is it a vassal relationship or is it more? Well, mm. again, we're not told explicitly. You know, so much is made, of course, of uh, of the 
the oath of you know Errol the young and uh, and 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 Kieran the steward. You know, so we the 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 oath of Errol is such a central piece mm-hmm. in the political situation in Rohan and its relationship with Gondor. And we don't get anything like that. There's no reference to that kind of thing. And I'm pointing to that because that's, of course, the clearest example of the kind of thing we're talking about, where on the one hand, Rohan remains an autonomous kingdom, but it clearly is uh, has more than just an allegiance with Gondor. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're independent. You know, Theoden is not well. Theoden is a bad example. Eomir is not a vassal of Aragorn's exactly. They swear an oath of mutual friendship with each other. You know, I think of the 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 the, the cry, and I always I always I, I always sort of laugh about this, and and uh, usually shout out the completion of the line that they left out of the film when Theoden is saying, you know, to, is urging his people to to charge into battle for Lord and land. And then he stops in the film. But of course, in the book, he continues, and League of Friendship. Because, of course, it's that last that they're really fighting for. They're fighting kind of for their land, in that if Minas Tirith falls, their land will presumably be next eventually. So they are kind of fighting for their land, and they're certainly fighting for their lord who has summoned them. But the whole point of why their lord has summoned them is to, is to, is to stay true to their League of Friendship, to stay true to the people that they have sworn uh, to support and to help. Um, but, um, and that seems to be, a league of friendship seems to be what exists between the Lonely Mountain and Dale in that period that you're describing. I think of another line from Glowen there in his, not in the council, but in his conversation with Bill, or with Frodo, rather, at the feast, um, right before the council, when he says that nowhere are there any men that are more friendly to us than the men of Dale. And the way that he talks about it there definitely implies to me that they are not vassals. He certainly doesn't seem to look at them as vassals. Um, you know, he doesn't say like, ah, yes, like our people in Dale, they're awesome, right? That's not his, um, that's not his, his tack there. Instead, you know, he says, um, they're our friends. Um, and it's that, it's, it's that element of friendship and the, the close friendship, both sort of personal and political, which I think that we can see in that image that you were describing of, you know, of old King Dan standing over the body of Brand um, in, uh, in the battle up there. Hmm. Um, so I do think, um, this, I do think that we that are, give us we're, a, we're given no reason. Would that, yeah, do you think that gives us a hint at all about the way things might be, if, if they delve into this into the film at all, do you think this gives us some kind of uh, hint about maybe how Peter Jackson might portray things? Well, see, here's the thing. It seems to me that Jackson in the first film has already made the move to simplify these matters by mm-hmm. making an explicit political tie. And I do think that the explicit swearing of fealty to the dwarves does simplify matters rather than just saying, hey, aren't we all kind of getting along? Um, Because again, to me, there's more than just, um, you know, again, like when Gandalf rebukes Thorin and says that he's not making a very fine figure as king, there's more here than just, boy, you're really screwing up in the foreign, you know, in the, in the, like, uh, you know, foreign affairs department, Thorin. Um, (laughs) You're really, you're really making a hash out of your local allegiances here, which he is, but 
there's more to it than that. You know, that there, there is a way in which he, you know, the connected to the mythic idea of being king and even more to the mythic idea of restoring the kingship and restoring order to the region um, through his return. Ooh, ooh. Ooh. completely failing at that. Yeah, Trish, go ahead. This, this is where I will jump in, actually, because I wanted to say, Kay, Kay Ben Avraham asked a question kind of along this line. I've been trying to find a good spot to have you talk about this. She asks, where was Tolkien drawing, uh, from, where was Tolkien drawing from for his concept of good kingship? Sorry about Buddha in the background. Um, I hear echoes of Old Testament, but I'm curious about Anglo-Saxon or Norse ideas with which I'm not so familiar. I know you've talked about this before, but would you kind of give us that synopsis again? Yeah, this is tricky because you know it's so f- it's it's one of the things that's, that that's really kind of funny and hard to place. I was actually just um, having a uh, conversation about this with an old friend of mine who is a political science professor um, and a Tolkien fan, and saying about basically how he gets really uncomfortable with Tolkien in these ways because uh, Tolkien will, on the one hand look like, you know, a very, you know, what my political scientist colleague would call, you know, friend and colleague would call, uh, you know, unenlightened, uh, uh, you know, political thinker. So, you know, who, like, when you look at the Shire and its elected officials and its, um, uh, you know, its, its aversion to any kind of, um, of, you know, sort of strong arm political power seems to be, uh, seems to be, one model of political thinking, but then you've got the whole return of the king stuff and the 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 focus on kingship as a positive thing in other places that then seems to go against that. And so he was like, you know, where is Tolkien here, and how do we how do we reconcile the Shire as an ideal with Gondor as an ideal? You know, is he is he pro monarch? Basically, is he a monarchist or is he not a monarchist? And um. You know, and I, it's it's a really good question because, of course, it's not just the question; it's not just about Gondor. Certainly, you go back through the Silmarillion tradition, and you know you've got nothing but kings. You know, all the old. You know, we don't have elected officials among the elves in the first age. You know, you've got hereditary lordships all over the place. Um, that does seem to be the model that he generally uses the shire is the one that's deviant not kings as far as tolkien's world seems to be concerned but um i'm gonna go out on a limb and guess that we're probably not supposed to not supposed to infer anything from this yeah well um from what from his representation of kingship yeah yeah or or rather that that his that his statement about kingship is not he's not stating a preference for monarchies over democracies but rather rather he's talking more about abstract principles so like it's it's you know that that so so the thing the kinds of things that he admires in the ideal king that he presents in the books are are things that he would admire in a in, in the ideal elected official or the ideal civil servant or the, you know, anything like that, that right. it's really more about right. the abstract principles than it is about the specific form in which it appears. Right. No, I agree. And that's, that's usually where something like what I usually come down on in, in a discussion like that is to say that Tolkien clearly really liked the, <clears throat> like the mythic force of the idea of the king. 
Mm -hmm. Um, And kingship as a mythic concept is obviously one that he finds very important. And certainly the return of the king makes for a better story and a more mythically powerful story than the story of a kingship which is in turmoil but then manages to elect a really forward-thinking official who sets the government to rights again <laughs> that just doesn't have the same mythic power as the the the, the return of the king uh, that we get in the Lord of the Rings. Um, so The return of the I... fair and free elections. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's, it's... <laughs> it doesn't have the same ring. <laughs> no, it really doesn't. It really well, doesn't. also, doesn't his position as a medievalist kind of enter into this? I mean, isn't that a... Uh, I always thought it was kind of that. You know, the mythic, but also sort of the medieval uh, government model, I always thought kind of was... Uh, had an influence. To some extent, yeah. Though, I mean, it's... it's um you know, Tolkien's kings are not necessarily very much like medieval kings. I mean, going back to Kay's particular question about, you know, Anglo-Saxon or Norse ideas, certainly there are Anglo-Saxon ideas of of the kings, and obviously you don't have to go any further than Rohan to see a very Anglo-Saxon-ish king indeed. Um, But more, I guess, I would say to Kay, the general principles of that do seem to inform Tolkien's principles of kingship very much. And by the general principles of that, what I mean is one of the things which Tolkien clearly valued most about the concept of the king as it's depicted in Anglo-Saxon, in the Anglo-Saxon tradition, um, is the kind of reciprocal relationship, the bond between the king and his uh, and his followers. And here the most, by far the most evocative um, mom- example of this that I can think of in the Anglo-Saxon tradition is in The Wanderer. This is a very famous uh, example, but again, I, I, I find it very powerful. The, the poem The Wanderer is an elegy. It's, it's, it's a, a, a poem that is spoken by the survivor of a kingdom that has fallen. His king and uh, the other warriors in his, uh, in, in his little kingdom have all been destroyed. His the you know their 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 hall was just was was uh, burned down and he's now out wandering the world on his own, uh, cold and lonely and not sure what to do. And when he thinks back to his king, um, he speaks very emotionally about his king, and what he what he recalls. You know, there's this passage which, uh, you know modern students, when we do this in Anglo-Saxon class, always find this passage, for good reason, very striking. Um, His memories of his Lord involve him sitting at the feet of his Lord with his head resting in his Lord's lap. Um, And like the affection with which he speaks of his Lord, it's like he has this mental image of himself cuddling his king. This is not just like a theoretical ideal. This is not just, but that kind of personal bond of like that he, him as the, the, the king, as the, as the father figure of his, um, of his people. We can see the, uh, the way in which he evokes this, especially with Theoden in The Lord of the Rings. Um, the example that, I, that always makes me think of this most um, is when he meets, when Theoden is marching out and he meets Kaorl, the rider who comes to give him news. Uh, and, you know, Kaorl comes with notched sword and, and says, is Amir here? You've come too late. Um, and then Theoden steps forward uh, and 
and names the guy by name. He recognizes him and names him by name and says that he's here. Uh, and, you know, Carol just drops to his knees and says, command me, Lord. Uh, and immediately his tidings, which he was bringing to say, you know, there is no hope. You're too late. We can't do anything. Now that the king himself has come, now he's, you know, he, he, he you know, takes out his notched sword and lays it at his king's feet and he's ready to go back and fight now because the king himself has come. Um, that's that sort of spirit of the Anglo-Saxon king, and, of, and more importantly, of the bond between sort of what what that idea of the king and kingship means uh, to those to those warriors means to the people, um, and the kind of relationship that the king has with the people. Now, that same model isn't true everywhere. I mean, you know, the kings of Gondor don't seem to be very much like the uh, the Anglo-Saxon kings in those ways as far as their relationship with their subjects is concerned. Um, it's a little hard to imagine anybody coming up and like kneeling next to the great throne in Minas Tirith and resting his head on the lap of the king of Gondor, but um, it's uh, it's still a um, that that uh, that idea of the mutual um, the, the relationship of mutual love between king and subject um, uh, is 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 a real. So I, I just, a lot of those those elements I think really do inform this idea of kingship. And um, Dave, as you were saying, I agree with what you said that I don't think the depictions of kings and of kingship in Tolkien really amounted at the end of the day to a political preference that you can say. See, this shows that he's a monarchist in his political leanings, or like sort of that's what he supports politically. Uh, no, I don't think so at all. Um, in practice, you know, when you've got an actual, you know, human being sitting on an actual throne ruling an actual people, um, you know, in the modern day world, he he he's Tolkien seemed to have been as uncomfortable with some of those things as anybody else. But again, as a mythic idea, um, as um, as an as 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 a framework in which to have stories take place that's the kind it's, it's it's this idea of kingship that he wants to have his stories engaged with um not to uh so, you know we don't have uh the 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 overcoming of evil um you know despite the uh you know the the rhetoric of recent american presidents to the contrary um this the the conquest of evil and spreading of good in middle earth does not correlate to the spreading of democracy um that's just not the system that you know sort of the 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 mythic system that tolkien is um is uh, uh is advocating really right um but <clears throat> anyway um but so thinking back to the the interrelationships there so again it's it's i, I keep ooh, thinking ooh, of these ooh. larger mythic terms yep yeah go Sorry, I, ahead, this is another thing I wanted to ask you. But you know, we were talking about we've been talking about Garion and the line of Garion and, and allegiances and whatnot. But in terms of Jackson's movie, did he actually? I mean, he mentions he specifically talks about Thrandall, but did he actually? Did they actually mention Garion in the exposition at the beginning? No. Did they? I didn't see Garion. I don't think I've so. Seen Garion. I mean, there's there's obviously no call out like there is with Randall walking into the hall and doing his head nod thing. I mean, they don't. All they really show is just Dale. So it's almost we almost get the impression, don't we, in the movie that it's almost kind of like the dwarves either oversee Dale or it's. I don't know. I mean, it yeah, it's Dale's not like really very suburb, clear. Basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's not really clear. <laughs> <A suburb. clears throat> 
Yeah. Anyway, I, I just, because I, it just dawned on me when we were talking about Garion that, you know, we're assuming Garion's name's even going to come up in the movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's hard to imagine it's not going to when we, um, I know, I know. When we get to Bard, but, um, because yeah. just again, just thinking of the, the, the the power of, you know, the return of the right. long lost heir of the king. Uh, you know, I mean, that's such a that's such a powerful and traditional story element. It's a little hard to imagine that. Jack well, it is kind of a trope. Yeah. yeah, I mean, exactly. sort of the Strider thing. Yeah, and you know, the the heir to the throne, you know, who who's not in power kind of thing. Because the only other option then Jackson would have is just simply Bard becomes the leader in Dale due to his prowess at you know, killing the dragon, which is not that big of a, I mean, that's not really a movie trope. Right. Right. Though. I mean, again, it could, um, I could imagine a, a movie ending in which basically Bard just takes over as master, you know, is not necessarily named King, but basically takes over the master of Lake town's position. Oh, true. Masters. Um, yeah. Right. So that he's clearly in a position of leadership among his people, but yet not appointed king in a way that's going to kind of conflict um, or or lead to any. Un, so if know, the master is portrayed as an elected official in the movie, then right. it Bard could simply be elected unanimously right. to be the new master, right? Exactly, and then even if he rebuilds Dale, that doesn't necessarily mean that now his position is different you know again he could right. still be the acclaimed leader of his people without be ever being called a king and no hereditary issue on that conceivably conceivably yeah. again it's a little hard for me to imagine that's the toughie that. i mean i just that's so hard and it's hard to predict yeah because i mean jackson's held pretty true to the book in areas where it hasn't you know he hasn't had to di- diverge so it's i would prefer to think he'd stick with it here too yeah what do you think, Dave? Do you think we're going to get Garion? Oh, that's an interesting question. But it's true; it's something we've been kind of taking. When for you granted. say "get," do you think when you do you mean do you mean see him or will no, someone mention? I just him? mean any reference to him. That Thorn will be like, Geryon "Oh yeah, concept. I remember your, uh, I remember Garion." Right. Right. Well, of course, that is another issue: is that we have we we have to address the compressed time frame thing. Um, because I mean, it is it has been only it has been only sixty years. Um, so whereas it's it's a it's a much wider gap. It's over one hundred and fifty years in the book. So you have several generations um, of of humans between the fall of Dale uh, and the return of Thorin to Lake Town, um, with only sixty years passing. You're gonna have, and we I know we talked about this some when we talked about Bar, but you're gonna have, you know, a fair number of people, such as presumably the girl whose doll catches fire, um, still alive <laughs> at the time of, uh, at the time of the films. So, and and at the least, you're talking about. I mean, he would be what the grandson at at most, as far as the the, the most distant yeah. remove that Bard could be from Girion would be grandson. Yep. Um, in, in which case, if you've got his grandfather, Girion, then you've got an inescapable kind of Thror, Thorin, Girion, Bard parallel with, like, my grandfather, the old king issue going on there. Um, and how and and maybe they would avoid that so as to limit the number of, like, 
former king grandfathers we have floating around in this plot. Um, <laughs> I mean, I could, I, I could see that uh, as as an argument. But Trish, you're right. I had I think I had not been thinking enough about the conspicuous absence of any reference to any kind right. of autonomous political situation in Dale there in that prologue. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean it's not there, because it could be that Jackson elected not to bring it up in that prologue, and it will it be brought from up. The, from, from the cinematic version. Yeah. Or, and it'll be brought up in the, in the second movie when we get to Lake Town, and, we get the, and then we'll have exposition about it at that point. Right. So it doesn't mean he's not in it. I just was interested. It was just interesting that we haven't really, he hasn't introduced Girion or any kind of government, Dale kind of government at all. Oh, that's, right. that's right. a good point. Right. I mean... I wonder if we will, in one of the next couple of films, get a bard flashback. It's quite possible, um, because it would make it would make a kind of sense. Um, to, that is, if we have um, Peter Jackson having made a decision to omit any reference to the politics of Dale and its relationship to the mountain, um, that could be done simply out of efficiency. The question, you know, Thranduil is brought into the prologue because the scene, it's necessary. Um, though we don't get to Mirkwood right. in film one, Thorin's elf issue needs an explanation. You know, right. the significance of Thranduil's non-support when Smaug came and attacked, uh, you know, this the, the significance of that needs to be explained, Which because, of course, even though Thranduil's not a character, it comes up again and again in Thorin's animosity towards elves all the way through the first movie. So that bit is necessary. The Dale stuff, totally not necessary for the first film. So yeah, right. maybe he's saving it and we're going to get a separate flashback. A, uh, you know, maybe even a very similar, like here's what that night and the years that followed looked like from the human point of view rather than from the dwarven point of view that we get in the first uh, flashback. Um, that would make sense because this is this one is going to be much more human. This is going to be a human-oriented installment, you know, right. where we really did, we didn't have any humans at all, really, in the first movie. Correct. Yeah. So yeah, I could see exactly. them doing that. Um, yeah, I could see them doing that. I mean, it's hard to see them going over too much ground again. As I could, I could also see that there was something in it that was cut out um, for the cinematic edition, or possibly cut out when they. Yeah. or expanded from two films to three films but um, but I don't know it's it does the more I think about it the more likely it begins to sound to me that they could remove the kingship from Dale just to avoid confusion um, so that you don't have to so that they don't even have to answer that question how are the people there related um, to Erebor because as I recall getting you know thinking back to the description of Dale and the kites and everything and then the way that we get that sort of pan over to the gates of Erebor with the with Bilbo's voiceover saying, you know, like one of the mightiest kingdoms, you know, for next to them stood one of the mightiest kingdoms of Middle-earth, you know, Erebor and um, it does, that thinking about my, thinking about how they did that does make it sound to me like they're just leading us to understand that Dale is not any kind of autonomous kingship, but like a settlement of humans that ha- happens to be right next to Erebor. Um, it did. It did kind of. 
you know, right. It, it did seem like if you had, if you only knew, if you only knew what you knew from the film and you had to guess, that's what you would guess. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. That's just, that's just how I'm thinking of it. Um, and right, right now, but at the same time, presumably they would have some kind of, of local leadership, right? I mm-hmm. mean, even if they are just existing as a kind of suburb of, of, of Erebor, um, it's not like they're going to take their every, you know, court case and um, property dispute to the king of Erebor. Um, so they're going to have a local leader of some kind, and maybe that could be the position that the master fulfills. See, to me, this is one of the questions, and this is one of the things that we were kind of wrestling with when we were thinking about a riddle uh, for this episode. To me, one of the interesting questions is going to be, how is the culture of Lake Town depicted in the film? And what I mean by that, or the particular aspect of that, I mean, is how present is the story of the days of old going to be in the lives of the people of Lake Town? That is, are they going to see their current structure, their current lifestyle there at Lake Town, the the political regime of the master of Lake Town, are they going to see that as the norm? Are they going to see that as, yes, this is how we have always done things in Lake, in Lake Town? Or are they going, you know, and, and, and then on top of that, there will be, there are also some distant legends about, like, when there used to be a king under the mountain and things were different, but nobody really remembers that and, and nobody really cares. Or are there, is there going to be a more present sense of the way things were of old um, and a recognition on the part of the characters in the film that the political regime of the master of Lake Town is essentially a newfangled thing which is not part of the way things have always been done at Dale and that you have people pining for a return to their old political structure or their old leadership uh, you know, ap- approach or However, th- however else things used to be different. Like, how are they going to view the master and their current lives as the status quo? That is how it is in the book. Um, you know, the the master of Lake Town says we have, you know, we in Lake Town we have always elected um, our leaders from among the old and wise, and we have never endured, uh, you know, the leadership of mere fighting men. Um, so he says this is how it's always been done. Uh, in Lake Town, though he does suggest things were different in Dale, and there was a king in Dale. Um, which, of course, even further complicates things, right? So that the king of Dale is not even just king of the humans roundabout, but apparently king of that city and its lands alone, um, which makes it even a smaller kingdom than it looked like being. Um, but anyhow, so how is Lake Town, how is Jackson gonna going to do it? I think it, it'll have a, a huge... Um, impact on how Bard is depicted and I know we've talked about this in a previous episode, but if basically the climate of Lake Town is, well nowadays, like things are different and like this is a much shabbier operation and we've got this master, but like you know, wouldn't it be awesome to get back to the good old days of Dale and then they all embrace Bard when he emerges or is the king merely a distant and legendary idea that gets invoked 
and sort of catches fire with them over the course of the story. Those two things, I think, create very different situations uh, in Lake Town, and also then, of course, open up very different questions about the relationship between Lake Town and the Lonely Mountain. Hmm. Hmm. What do you think about that, Dave? Do you which, which do you think? There, as far as the relationship between the people of the lake and the master of Lake Town, do you, is it is it your sense that that he's going to play? Do you think he's going to play the master of Lake Town, um, or, or rather, like the mastership of Lake Town? Forget like what kind of a guy the master of Lake Town is. But you mean the role? The yeah, the role that he has, the, the regime that is in place in. Um, uh, you know, sort of the structure that's in place in that's lockdown. A, that's an um, interesting. That's a that, that's a really tough question because obviously we were talking about this before uh, when we were trying to come up with a riddle. There's this idea that like um, you know that the people in the book don't seem to have their memory of the good old day. You know, sort of the time before when you know the time before the dragon when Erebor was around. Uh, it has sort of faded into faded into myth, and that that, that there aren't people really. Yes. They didn't they didn't maintain a um, accurate you know uh, record of the way th- of the history of Dale um, and the region uh, dating back to the time of the King Under the Mountain. That they you know that the the things that they say about the return of the King of the Under the Mountain is that the rivers will flow with gold and all this kind of stuff. Which I mean maybe maybe you could say that that's a metaphor and what they're really talking about is like hey without the dragon we could really get some commerce going and somebody finally get back to work right. mining that mine. Um, but but it doesn't it sounds it doesn't sound like that. It sounds. And it doesn't sound like they really take it seriously either. Well, I guess they kind of, it's hard to interpret in the book. You know, obviously they they are really excited about the dwarves, but it's not clear whether they really believe that they'll succeed or anything. It, it really it kind of it kind of sort of gives you this it gives you the sense of sort of a almost like a sort of a religious or mythical belief as opposed to like an yes. actual sort of you know knowledge of history and conviction that things will come about. Uh, and I don't exactly. They like the idea of the king. Yeah. But they're. It's not. That they're saying, ah, we believe in Thorin and we believe he will succeed. That's the difference between the people of the town in general and the master in the right. book. Is the master seems to be the only one of them actually thinking in practical terms. Right. And he doesn't really believe that Thorin. His personal belief is that Thorin is a fraud, and is just conning the conning everybody. And so he is pushing this uh pushing them along because he's hoping to expose them that that you know thorn is never going to actually go and try to attack the dragon right um but of course it, that turns out to be not true so yeah the master is the only one who's thinking in those kinds of practical terms i agree there is a much more um sort of mythic slash religious sense in the ter- in, in the people like they love the idea of the king but they're not thinking uh in any kind of of, of practical terms Right. Um, and uh, but I don't know how well that'll that'll work in the, the film. Like, I, I feel like in the film, there'll be more of a tendency to maybe try to to make the people more proactive instead of the people just having, be, you know, just having resigned themselves to living on this little this these wooden shanties on the um, on the edge of the lake. And just, you know, like, well, we you know, we got to put up with old money bags and the other money bags because that's just the way things are like. 
I sort of like I'm tempted to think that that they will go in the direction of trying to make the people more proactive. That there'll be people people who um, either either have a, you know either have a living memory of of what things were like, or or at least have been you know like maybe barred some guy who's been obsessed with his you know grandmother's tales of the olden days, and he's like wants mm-hmm. to reestablish his kingship or something like that. Um, and so I I wonder if there'll be a greater you know there'll be like an opposition party in the, t- the town fighting against the they they've kind of hinted at that with Bard already that he's going to be like some kind of rebel right. on the run from the authorities so i wonder if they're going to well, take that exactly. and run with it and and the logical extension talk about running with it the logical extension of that idea is then to make the master of lake town a usurping tyrant yes you know a kind of uh uh you know a, a kind of like sheriff of nottingham figure or whatever um uh, that 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 would be the logical extreme to have his rule be imposed upon the people either by force or at least as an innovation with which they're not entirely comfortable. Right. And to have Bard be the lead person of the significant faction of the people of Lake Town who really long for a return to the way things were. Right. And the master of Lake Town is seen as an offshoot of the unfortunate and unhappy circumstances of the yeah. present. The, the the one thing about that is, but you know, but you know, you mentioned. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say the casting of Stephen Fry. I wonder if we should mm-hmm. take that into account. Like, is he the kind of guy you would have play that role, or is he going to be more of a buffoon? Yeah, I guess he he could do it. He could do. I mean, he doesn't have to be. Um... He doesn't have to play, you know, a complete straight man, totally wicked and malicious kind of sheriff of Nottingham figure. Um, right. I mean, that I wouldn't think would be necessary. Um, he could be. Um, I would expect him to be cunning. Uh, that's one of the things which is the sort of central to the idea of the master of Lake Town in the book, um, is that he is very cunning and very calculating. Um, I think Stephen Fry actually said in an interview. I was going to say cowardly. You know, mm-hmm. he's a he's a despot, or I mean, he could be a despot, and, and, you know, like you said, cunning and calculating, but basically cowardly, which would, would drive a lot of his behavior, you know, hiding behind the military or yeah. blustering yeah. and being very authoritative and, you know, that kind of thing. But I remember Fry saying, I, th- I think he did say in an interview that he's a coward. Right, right, yeah. I mean, certainly f- physically a coward, that when it comes to actual battle right, or right. danger, um, that he runs for it and saves his own hide rather than doing anything self-sacrificial or brave. Um, right. But and he's yeah, much more covert in his activities and very right. castle intrigue as opposed to being, you know, like directly conf- confrontational. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, but that's not to say, but I mean, I think that you're right, that that kind of cowardliness um, can very easily manifest itself as uh, despotism. Um, you know, is, 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 is very much... Um, very much uh, congruent with despotism. Um, and it could be that particular right, kind right. of despotism where he is seeking to exert through his, um, either through his wealth or through his soldiers or both, um, to to assert this kind of control over, uh, over Lake Town and over the people. And that Bard's return to Bard's ascension to power would be seen as a, as one way or another a kind of restoration of the traditional order. Um, 
That but I do wonder, to back like to your that. point, I do wonder mm-hmm. back to your point, you know, how you said we don't want too many grandsons, you know, looking for the throne, littering right. the landscape. Um, in a similar vein, I want, would Jackson really want to evoke the Return of the King theme? Because it sure seems like if they went that direction, it would seem so similar to Aragorn's story. Yeah, well, I mean, it is similar. I mean, there are parallels. There are parallels between Bard and Aragorn. There are parallels between Thorn and Aragorn. Um, and that's okay. But I, th- and I, I don't think, I wouldn't think that Peter Jackson would have to distance himself from those parallels too much because so much is different in the circumstances that even if there are kind of big picture parallels between the situations, um, neither the characters nor the circumstances are really going to look that much like Aragorn's situation that people are necessarily going to be sitting there saying, what are, what are we watching the same movie again? How did this happen? Um, right, right. Actually, I could see it as an advantage because it's almost subliminally makes the connection as opposed to being overt about exactly. it. Um, exactly. And then on the other hand, you know, I could see him going the other way, which is to literally, like we talked about earlier, making Bard more the elect, you know, oh, let's elect Bard now. You know, we got rid of this master that we should right. have elected. Let's elect Bard now. And there's not even a whiff of, of lost kingship in it. So this is right. going to be interesting to see how he does that, actually. Yeah, I know. of course... I know Jackson said he's he's they made they took pains to make Bard an enigmatic character in the second film. But that's that's a direct quote from him. So I'm not sure right. exactly what that means. But... Right, or whether we'll just not learn the answer to the <laughs> right. questions in film two. Right. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, of course, one thing that I've been kind of combining here is this idea of the desire to return to the glory of the past and the kingship. Of Girion, but of course one could do one without the other. Um, there didn't have to be a king in Dale. Girion, you know, whoever it is, you know, his, whether his name is Girion or not, who is Bard's, um, you know, forerunner, who, who, you know, whose ways Bard is wanting to return things, doesn't have to have been king. Um, so they could have that kind of idea of the master being a deviation from the way things had always been done and should be done uh, in Lake Town, and of Bard in the end being the champion of the restoration of that old order without kingship being in the picture there. That's certainly possible. So basically we could get Nogirian and still have that idea of the return to the traditional good old days. Right, 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 right. Uh, uh, a slightly different topic. Do you think that Diane and that group of dwarves will be sort of referred to, introduced in uh, film two, and will they have some kind of connection, either political or economic, to the Lake Town folks? That's an excellent question. Especially the latter part was one I hadn't thought of at all. Do I think we'll get some reference to Diane? Yes, I do. I yeah. do think that so that we'll be ready for him when he shows up, presumably in film three. However, I don't, um, I, will there be any kind of connection, any kind of relationship, any kind of recognition, um, between the dwarves of the Iron Hills and the men of Lake Town and their current, um, stance? That is, like when Dan shows up, is the master of Lake Town or Bard or somebody in Lake Town going to be like, oh, great, them? <laughs> you know, like, are, 
are they going to recognize them, basically? Um, and I don't know. I mean, in some ways, I feel like I have no idea how to guess this ever since... Uh, I mean, I still haven't recovered from watching The Fellowship of the Ring and the like shock to my system that I got when I discovered that Boromir had heard of Aragorn. Um, you know, that connection. When in the Council of Elrond, um, Aragorn is mentioned and Boromir says, Aragorn? I'll never forget watching that film in the theater for the first time and being like, what just happened there? Why has Boromir heard of Aragorn, and what on earth is 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 happening? Uh, that was that was that was to me so strange. So uh, who knows? Anything is possible. Um, my guess would be no. Uh, that we're not going to get any kind of recognition of Dan. That we're not going to get any back history between the dwarves of the Iron Hills and these others, because it, it just it creates one more plot line to to you know. One more story that has to be told in order to set up the story that's happening. Um, and I would think that they would just be kind of roll, you know, be, be Dan and the other dwarves would be operating as far as the humans and elves are concerned. As Independently. Just kind of under yeah. the Erebor um, umbrella, really. I mean, I could see the master maybe saying something like, we already have enough dwarves in this part of the world. We right. don't need more. <laughs> exactly. Or we're better off without them. You know, it's been kind yes, of nice yes. no dwarves, actually. The only um, good dwarf is a dead dwarf. <laughs> right, right. That would be the next <laughs> next level of, of, that, uh, of that expression. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but now Thorin will be fully aware, of course, that Diane is there. And I mean, obviously, to me, obviously, you know, because in the book he calls on him for aid, and I mean, right? I mean, doesn't he send Roak, or does Roak volunteer to go? I can't remember which. No, he he does. Um, he sends. He sends. He sends Roak. him. Yeah. 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 Um, you know exactly. And in the film, of course, Thorin starts off by going to his kin and seeking allies. And right. Them refusing to come, and that seems to be a setup for the fact that he is going to have kinsman and ally who is going to come when he calls uh and that's dan at the end so um so i i do assume that that's what's going to happen i do assume that thorn is going to is going to summon dan and he's going to come in response um as a sort of a corresponding moment to the failure at the beginning of the first film um his failure to rally allies Right. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, w- I want to give you guys advance notice that the uh, Michael. This is definitely a Michael Lucero episode today. He's done amazing things. Um, I, sug- I would like to end with Tariel as we began with Tariel, which means we have to go through the riddle first because I don't want to mess her up. Because he shared a link on your Facebook page that actually pertains to some of the stuff we were talking about at the beginning. So, but I just want to give you a warning. We'll do that later. So okay. I'm thinking we should okay. probably segue into the riddle okay. fairly soon. Yeah. <laughs> well, the riddle, and especially since the riddle is addressing the relationship between, um, the relationship between lake, the lake and the elves, which is sort of the other leg of this tripod that we haven't really talked about too much, other than to recognize the fact that the film one did establish an explicit. Uh, relationship of vassalage between the Elven King and uh, the Dwarven Kingdom of Erebor. Um, 
which there, therefore, of course, leads me not to wonder whether or not the human cities, you know, the human lands near the mountain were autonomous. They certainly, if the Elven King isn't autonomous, Dale and, and, and Esgaroth were certainly not autonomous from Erebor back in the day. The only question is whether they even have a king at all um, uh, to come and swear fealty in that same way. But, um, uh, but, but then there's the question of what will the relationship between the Elven King and the lake be like? Um, you know, not how they're connected with the dwarves, but how they're connected with each other, and how Tolkien is going to depict that. Um, it's one of the things, or not, or not we, we know how Tolkien depicted it, how Jackson is going to depict it. How Tolkien depicted it um, is, of course, one of the interesting elements of the whole thing. Tolkien shows us the complicated political situation in which the master of Lake Town finds himself upon the arrival of Thorin and company because he doesn't want to offend the Elven King because the Elven King was very strong in those parts. Um, he knows, and if these people are escaped prisoners of the Elven King, if he is sheltering and encouraging escaped prisoners uh, from the Elven King's dungeon, that's a pretty serious political step to be taking. Um, he would have, you know, a duty, or at least it would be very much in his best interest, to recapture the dwarves and hand them back over to the elves. That's what a good ally should do when somebody comes to your hall and says, oh yeah, I just broke out of the prison of your close friend and ally. What you're supposed to do is recapture them and return them. So he knows that he should do that, but at the same time, he is under this burden of humoring the public acclaim that the dwarves are meeting uh, in Lake Town. So he can't offend the people by throwing the, king, the, the, you know, the, the destined returning king under the mountain that they're all singing songs about. He can't clap him in irons and send him back up the river. So he waits and tries to sort of sit on the fence and, uh, and, and see what's best to be done. Um, in the book, will we have that same kind of respect shown to the Elven King by the Master of Lake Town? Will we get that? Will we have a relationship of deference? Will they simply be strangers uh, to each other? The fact that they were both in some way related to Erebor doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be closely related to each other. Uh, of course, the other way in which the elves were very much a factor in the calculations of the mayor of Lake Town and in the lives of the lake men in general is that they have a trade agreement with them. You know, that, that they, um, they have economic advantages from their relationship as well, not merely the fact that the elf, the elven king, uh, clearly wields a significant amount of, of military authority in the region. Um, but again, there's there's the economic factor as well. Those things are um, those things are, are are foregrounded in Tolkien's discussion of the master's dilemma when Thorin and company come in. <coughs> By the way, you 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 slipped just a minute ago and said mayor of Lake Town, which reminded oh, me of something. I, yeah, I, I was I was perusing uh, annotated Hobbit, you know the the margins, reading poems for class, but yeah. I also noticed that. Doug Anderson brings up the simil in his mind the similarity between the mayor of Hamelin in the poem yes. Pied Piper 
and the and the master of Lake Town, which is kind of interesting because apparently Tolkien hated that story. But I just thought that was I thought, oh, that is interesting actually. Master of Lake Town really is very much like the mayor of Hamelin. So anyway, side, yes. side note. Yeah, no, may I do sometimes call the master the mayor, and uh, um, it's a connection which is suggested at a couple points. But <laughs> um, but yeah, no, and John Ratliff talks about that connection too with the the uh, uh, the Pied Piper connection, um, uh, though they do it through the progress in Bimble Bay poem, and I have a hard time getting through that. Um, but anyway, I, I don't want to. I don't want to enter into a discussion of his poem <laughs> "Progress in Bimble Bay." Um, but you expounded a little on that Bimble last Town, night. Rather. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, uh, but uh, but yeah. So okay. So so what is the relationship between the land of the elves and the land of the lake? And the other reason that I think that this is a big deal is it will have a lot to do with what's going on at the end um, in the Battle of Five Armies as a major setup to what's to what's um, to what we get at the end. Um, mainly because it's pretty clear in the book, well in the book it's complicated because the major kind of grievance, the major discussion point um, is between Thorin and Bard. They are the two principles in the deliberations that are happening and the discussions that are happening around the Lonely Mountain prior to the outbreak of the Battle of Five Armies. Because Bard is the one who has claims on the treasure through the treasure of Girion, through his killing of the dragon, and it's the men of the lake who helped the dwarves and who are now requesting uh, help in return. Um... As Thorin very rightly points out, he has no reason to think with any kindness upon the Elven King or to do him any favors. Um, so the Elven King is not a principal in the discussions. Uh, it's Bard, but he is the one who is sort of primarily supporting Bard. Um, so in the book, we have this situation where it's where Bard is is pretty much in command of the of the of the expedition up to the Lonely Mountain, and he is certainly the, um, uh, the, the figurehead, since he's the one who has valid claims upon the treasure, and the, and the Elven King has no possible question of any claim upon the treasure. Um, and yet, there's also this sense in which the Elven King is the one kind of propping him up in the first place. I mean, who is this guy? Um, Bard, that is. You know, he has no position even among the lake, the men of Lake Town, um, and the men of Lake Town are a relatively small concern in the larger business of that region. So, uh, whereas the Elven King is a much bigger deal, and we know that he that at the very least the Elven King is the big brother of this of this partnership, uh, you know, of the allegiance that seems to exist. At least, let me say more neutrally, the working arrangement that seems to be in place between Lake Town and Mirkwood in the book. Um, it's, it's, as I said, it's clear who's the older sibling um, uh, in that relationship. Um, but in the movie, how are we going to get this? We've got this conflict between the dwarves and the elves um, that has already been played up in film one in anticipation of the imprisonment uh, and the unpleasantness to follow. 
uh, in subsequent films. But when they get together, how are they going to set it up so that they get together? I mean, are we going to get a strong lake town um, in equal alliance with the Elven King so that we have a kind of, you know, joining of two allied, well, okay, not quite superpowers, but, you know, significant powers in the region um, coming up against Erebor? Or are they going to do it differently? Are we going to see basically a division between Thranduil and Bard, you know, where Thranduil is playing his own game and Bard feels he's being manipulated. Are we going to have the uh, Thranduil actually deferring to Bard in any way? Um, uh, how is that going to be played out? Because so, that's where I feel the initial setup of the political relationship between Lake Town and Mirkwood is really important because it sets the stage for all of those things, which is going to have a big impact on how the Battle of Five Armies plays out. Hmm. So, what do you think about that question, Dave? What are your well? Actually, let's go ahead and let's go ahead and and, and yeah, let's do the, the let's do the riddle. riddle, and then we can we can do it in terms of the riddle. So, okay. So the the question of the riddle is just basically directly at what I was just talking about, which is how will the political and economic relationship between Lake Town and Mirkwood uh, be portrayed? Um, and by Mirkwood, of course, we mean Thranduil and the Elven King explicitly. Okay, option A. They have a trading agreement, uh, wine or other commodities via barrels, etc., and are political allies. B. They have a trading agreement, but aren't allied at all. They, so there's no real, they're not, they don't consider themselves friends, they just live near each other and sell stuff to each other. C. They're allied, but have no trading agreement. So they have friendly connections, but don't interact with each other through regular trade. And D. They are not allied and have no trading agreement. So they're just, you know, these two, these two area, these two lands are like ships passing in the night. No real connection between them at all prior to the events of the film. Okay. So what do you think? What do you think, Dave? Man, I don't know. <laughs> um, that's an interesting. Wait, so. Which one do we think is the book answer? Ah, good point. Is it? It's either well, A or B, I think, isn't it? It's A. I would say that the answer is A. I mean, they're not, like, close allies. They're not, like, really close friends. But they are on good terms, politically speaking. And the Master is wanting to preserve those good terms. And that's why he's finding himself, by harboring and helping Thorin... He could be seen by the Elven King as encouraging one of the enemies of the Elven King, and that would be bad. Um, but again, it's clearly more of a he's afraid of the Elven King more than they are close friends and he doesn't want to disappoint him. But I would actually say that that A is closer to the book answer here because they clearly do have a relationship um, that's why when the when Lake Town is destroyed by the dragon, they send messengers up to ask aid of the Elven King, not as strangers, you know, not as, hey, you may remember us, like we sell some wine to you and stuff, um, and uh, <laughs> a dragon has destroyed our town, you know, could you come as strangers and help us? But rather, um, hi, we're your allies and we need your help, um, and we'll accept it on any terms. Um, 
So again, we're not talking about Gondor and Rohan here, but in the book it seems clearly suggested that they are actively allies in some sense. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Now, Robert Brown asks, what additional criteria make them allies and not sole trading partners? I think you, you may have... You may have just defined that. You may have just responded to that. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, a, tr a trading agreement would just mean that um, there is interaction between them at all. I mean, I guess you could say it's a question of, of like different th thresholds of familiarity, right? Um, if they live near each other, but they really have no purposeful interactions with each other of any kind, either political or economic, um, then, you know, that would be D, none of the above, right? Um, they, if, to have a trade agreement but not, an, but not an, uh, a, a political allegiance would just be, you know, we live nearby, you know, we have, we, some of your people trade with some of my people, um, we might make some arrangements for that, but there's no real... Um, there's no real large. There's no larger partnership between our peoples. Um, uh, again, we're just still sort of like strangers and people who happen to be. I mean, to give an example, um, well, it's kind of a funny example, but I would almost point to uh, the relations between. Well, no, because they they don't trade at all. It's hard because there are so few other examples of trade. I was actually the example I was thinking of that I, that I'm now backing off from is the relationship between the Shire and Bree. They're not allies, you know. They're not connected with each other. They're not kingdoms either. Um, so that is a different situation. But uh, but the, the, there's there's no trade relationships between Bree and uh, and um, well, no, there is because. Butterbur is familiar with Shire Leaf. He says you know, he's right. all for Bree in most matters, but he does agree that that uh, the the tobacco of the Shire is better, so they must get some leaf out there in Bree. Mm -hmm. And when they find the leaf in Isengard, the comment is not, "I didn't know this was ever sold, but I didn't know it came so far." Mm -hmm. as right, this. right. So, okay, so there we go. I'm willing to say um, that uh, Bree and the Shire could be said in some sense to have a trading relationship, but they're not allies. It's not like, ah, our friends and companions in Bree. Um, so allies would be if Lake Town was filling out a form and it said emergency contact, they would put <laughs> Mookwood Elves, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. In case of emergency, <laughs> notify the right. Elven King. Notify the Elven King, right, right, right. Now, right. Brianna <laughs> makes a good point here. Brianna brings up an interesting point here, um, uh, and I think I have a slight answer, but I, I want to see if you could shoot this one down. She says their status as allies probably won't be clarified until film three. Uh, which could make this one a, tr a tricky one to judge. Now, I responded by saying, well, I think we may be able to get a sense of if there's an alliance there by the way the master reacts, which is what you've already talked about. Yes. And also there may be other indications of that. I mean, do you think that's fair or do you think Brianna makes a point that maybe this isn't a film too? 
question. Well, I mean, I certainly can. I imagine a scenario in which it's not finally resolved until film sure. three. Sure, but um, but no, I, it, for, for exactly the reason that you said. Um, how much does the uh, does the Elven King and his reaction factor into the Master's discussion and and you know his right. own decision right. process? Um, if he acts totally independently, I mean, if he doesn't care, I mean, if, you know, if he here, is he even going to hear that uh, Thorin was imprisoned by the Elven King and escaped? Um, if he does, is he going to care at all? Um, if he does care, then it suggests that there are political relations between them. Of course, the other reason he might care is just strictly a commercial reason, which is he doesn't want to tick off his major customer. You know what I mean? Right, and there certainly does seem to be a significant element of that in the book as well. Um, right, right. It's probably yeah, worth getting it from. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Gee, here I thought I came up with that all by myself. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. No, but I mean, I think that's. Yeah, I mean that is. But but see, there it would just it would it would it would depend upon how, um, it would depend upon how, it, came across in mm -hmm. the films to be able to try to to be able to try to decide that. Um, certainly one of the things which demonstrates, I think, most clearly is the fact that they send to them for aid. Um, that suggests pretty... Because you, you don't just do that to your trade partners, you know? Um, you don't but like Raina says, that might not happen in, until the third movie. Right, no, I agree with that. Um, but... I still think there's a lot that the that the master of Lake Town could show us that would indicate one way or the other. Not to mention the elves too. Um, right, that's true. You, do we ever hear anything about Lake Town from them? Mm -hmm. um, you know, how are they? How do they talk about it? I mean, in the book, we get um, contact between, and this is something that I'm not at all sure is going to happen in the film. In the film, you know, when they go down with the barrels. You know, they go down the river in the barrels, and then the barrels are collected and rowed down, you know, pulled down the rest of the river by elves, whose job it is to pull empty barrels down the river. I mean, there's a regular trade route that's maintained right. um, by, uh, uh, by the Elven King, um, and that's why, that's how the Master learns that they were escaped from the Elven King's dungeon, because there are elves there. Um, and this is something that always confuses people because Tolkien calls them in the book the raftmen of the elves, um, but he's using the word man generically there. They're elves. They're not humans. Um, but anyway, uh, there are elves present who immediately pipe up and say, hey, these are prisoners of our king. Um, but remember all of that stuff where Bilbo is, we don't get most of the dialogue, but where Bilbo is overhearing the conversation of the raft elves and by overhearing their talk learns a lot about Lake Town and the region that they're going into. If we do get um, that kind of scenario, if the barrels are not just, don't just float down the stream and then, you know, wash up on the shore loose and have Bilbo unlock them. If they do encounter uh, traders like that, you know that that certainly would show us something. I think obviously we're going to get some compression there, but um, but it will be interesting to see. You know, uh, is what we're seeing basically to to put it in a different way? The escape of the dwarves is managed by exploiting what is a standing trading route between 
the Halls of the Elven King and Lake Town in the book. Will that be happening? Will that be what happens in the book? We know they will escape by barrel, but um, in the book, is it just going to be a matter of finding a bunch of barrels, tossing them in the river, and escaping in them? That is, you know, is it going to be part of the normal trade route or not? Oh, I could easily imagine, for instance, um, Bilbo arranging like to let loose a bunch of barrels, not in the way that they're normally supposed to go, like how the the elves roll the barrels in and then release them from the water gate and everything else, um, but rather they're just being a bunch of barrels which happen to be near the water and Bilbo contriving to get the barrels accidentally rolled into the river and then have them float away and have the elves be standing there saying, crap, there go a bunch of our barrels. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And then down they go down the river and let them out by Lake Town. Um, I think we've seen a clip with somebody, and I want to say it was Bilbo Brandon might remember this, um, where he's actually pulling a lever, which seemed to be like releasing barrels. And it, maybe I dreamed it. I don't know. Well, Brianna, I, you can remind me if this see, is actually the case. I would kind of expect that. Um, yeah. Uh, I would kind of expect that. Uh, yeah, okay. Bilbo to be more active in that. But but that doesn't necessarily I – mean, but again, that, that still leaves open the question, is this an established trade route, the barrel route? Is the barrel route an established trade route between uh, the lake and the in the forest. Um, and it's not obvious to me that they will have to do it that way. It may well be that no question of trade is ever really brought up in the film um, as that kind of element of uh, local economics does not always make for the most gripping movie material, strangely. Um, so maybe there will be no reference to trade whatsoever. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <sighs> well, I'm going to step out ready to make a answer. prediction? I'm going to go for A. I don't know. Dave, you've been kind of quiet, so I'm going to put you on the spot. What do you think? It's my problem is I don't I'm I have trouble mentally getting purchase on what anything but A would look like. Um mm-hmm. I don't, I just I don't see a compelling reason to do anything significantly different from the book and that I I actually I feel like if they do anything if they change it at all they'll make it even stronger uh that the they might make the alliance even stronger. Um uh I don't I don't know maybe they're estranged at this point. I guess you could you could make an argument for that. Um and I I feel like it's possible that maybe maybe they'll weaken the trading agreement in the sense that like or at least there won't be any evidence on screen of any kind of strong trading agreement. I could see them doing like you know, especially with the with the little shot of Bilbo pulling a lever and dumping barrels in the water that Maybe they're maybe the elves aren't in the habit of sending barrels down the river to Lake Town, and maybe Bilbo just kind of you know just grabs some barrels and throws them in the river type thing, and the elves are like, ah, oh, like you said, oh crap, there goes some of our right. barrels. Well, you gonna go get them, Frank? Nah, right. we'll just we'll just uh, write them off of our taxes, and <laughs> right. lost lost capital equipment or right. something. Right. Exactly. So I guess I could see them doing that, and then the alliance. Uh, maybe there's a possibility of them. Uh, like maybe that's one of the things from history that we'll see that like oh they used to be all allied and friends back in the days of the lonely mountain but now they're estranged and you know there's just like this black market barrel trade but that's it 
Uh, but I just I don't find any of that compelling. <laughs> like I still at the end of the day I'm like, eh, it's probably black market trade in butter and apples up and down the river. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, <laughs> here's 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 uh, uh, here's one idea, Dave, as to what it can look like. Um, one possibility of a non-allied situation would be the human settlement on the lake is below the notice of the elves. Like they don't care about it at all. They barely they don't they don't pay a lick of attention to it. Um, maybe there are some elves who trade some stuff with the humans, and so there are a few of the elves, like the wine traders and stuff, who notice that there are humans there. Um, and maybe if they ever come, if it ever comes to the attention of the elven king that there is a town full of human beings living on the lake. Um, he only cares in so much as he knows they have vineyards and send him and, and, and they buy wine from them. But other than that, they don't factor into his political thing at all. And to him, this is just about, uh, to the Elven King, this is just about him and Thorin. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the fall of the dragon at the hands of these, this insignificant, you know, one of the people in this insignificant settlement of human beings, um, then creates a situation where Thranduil says, okay, now I can capitalize on this. You know, now I will come to them and be like, ah, let us be allies, me and your, you know, not so mighty kingdom, but whatever. I will treat you as if you were an ally so I can use you as a cat's paw uh, in uh, my uh, ongoing conflict with Thorin. Um, that would be one way in which we have no... Uh, no real, you know, and so so depending on how you do the wine trading element in, in there, um, they could have some relationship with them, they could have no connection with them, but I could definitely see them choosing, and you could say that this was set up in the prologue by the fact that we get the fealty of Thranduil, but no reference to the humans at all, that to the human, to Thranduil, the humans aren't even in this equation. Um, and he doesn't really care. So um, that's one just to, just to, 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 I'm, 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 I'm trying to be helpful, Dave, to assist in what that, in, in envisioning what that might look like. Right. But you're, but you're not actually convinced by any of those things. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think I need to, I think I need to talk about it a little bit more to convince myself. I think. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm well, leaning okay. toward, uh, I'm leaning toward uh, a. I think that's what I'm going to go with. Here is the one thing in what I just said that I do find most convincing, though. I do suspect that to Thranduil, it's going to, the situation is primarily going to be about him and Thorin. I'm not really sure that he's going to see the whole Siege of the Lonely Mountain as a genuine three-body equation. Um, Bard is going to be a factor, because he killed the dragon. Mm -hmm. But Bard could easily just be certainly in the eyes of the Elven King, merely a cat's paw. Um, and not it's not being a question of, we are here to support our friends, the men of the lake. Um, you know, this is really a men of the lake issue, and we're just here because we're their allies, and we're helping them, um, which is the Elven King's line in the book. But um, I could easily see film Thranduil not going in that direction at all. Um, and I... Yeah, expect Thranduil to be not to be pretty unpleasant, actually. Um, so I could see him, but then you get the Master of Lake Town figure, who is himself uh, 
you know, cunning and manipulative and trying to uh, trying to manipulate things for his own personal best, first and foremost, uh, and for the profit of Lake Town secondarily. Um, Hmm. <laughs> uh, so crush. I'm trying to decide whether I can really talk myself into it. Because I think if I didn't go with A, where I would go would be D. That is, the elves just not paying a lick of attention to the human beings. So it's all or nothing. They're either allied in trading, or, or they're or they don't even realize they exist. But yeah, well, they might realize they exist, just not care. Um, just have them not be a factor at all in their lives. That's what I'm, that's what I'm debating. That's what I'm debating. The extremes are definitely the most attractive to me. <laughs> hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, this is a tough one. I mean, I guess I could imagine a middle ground. But I don't think they're going to be allies. I don't. Really? I don't think we're going to have a pre-existing friendship. Yeah. No. No. I don't think so. I don't think so. Mostly because I think the humans are going to be too small potatoes. And I think that the, the, the kingdom of the elves is going to be built up as a great thing. Um, bigger than it is in the book. And in the book, it's significantly bigger than Lake Town. Um, and I think that what we're going to get in the master is basically a conniving politician on the make who is trying to make something out of nothing, um, who knows that what he's doing is being the, you know, like petty dictator of a small time establishment, but that he's going to be trying to do everything that he can to expand, you know, Lake Town's holdings and Lake Town's position. Um, so I expect to see both before and after the death of the dragon um, a lot of positioning on the part of the mayor of Lake Town. I expect, by the way, Stephen Fry to be involved at the Lonely Mountain. That's a, that's a free prediction. Um, you know how in the book the master <laughs> of Lake Town gets left behind uh, and it's just Bard and the Elven King up there? No way, man. I think unless they kill off Stephen Fry in the battle, um, which is conceivable, but I don't look for it, um, then I think that the master of Lake Town is going to be involved and we're going to get, like, you know, backdoor stuff between the Elven King and the master behind Bard's back. And, like, the master is going to be, on the one hand, like, facilitating and claiming to be, uh, you know, helping Bard, but, like, he's going to be totally stabbing Bard in the back and trying to arrange other deals. And I, I, I think there's a lot of potential for the master here, and that's what I, I, I do expect the master to be much more vital. He disappears. After after that scene where Bard crawls out of the water and everybody tries to acclaim him king and the master does his, like, manipulative political thing, um, from that moment on, the master almost completely vanishes from the story until we hear about it. And we get story. him as an epilogue. Yeah, we get yeah. him as an epilogue kind of later. Exactly. Yeah. What about I don't think the... that's going to happen. What about the well, especially with Stephen Fry. I mean, he's a big draw, so... Right. <laughs> Um, and what about the possibility of uh, the, um, the them being hostile? 
Somebody proposed that idea in here. Uh, Robert Brown, could they yeah. be hostile and racing each other to the mountain? No, I don't think I don't see that. Mostly because I mean the humans aren't going to be in a position to race, and I think it's much more likely that uh, the Elven King is going to see them as a tool that can be used. Because again, they they have a claim, right? So mm-hmm. when it's just you know the, the the first impulse of the Elven King in the book, the first impulse of the Elven King is to race everybody else to the mountain, right? Smaug mm-hmm. is dead. All right, I'm like getting on my horse and I'm taking my army and we're going. <laughs> the mountain as fast as possible to like plant our little flag on that little mountain of treasure um absolutely oh that's um, right because they assume the dwarves are dead don't they yeah initially. exactly yeah. they assume the dwarves are dead then when it turns out that oh unfortunately thorn isn't dead and <laughs> uh there's actually a king of the dwarves sort of after a fashion to negotiate with kind of um then I guess we have to do that. So once he's in that position of negotiating, then I would expect him to say, okay, oh, yes, no, Bard, absolutely, yeah. No, he's the dragon slayer. Um, he totally, yeah, it's his claims I'm here supporting. And then have the master be like, yeah, okay, yeah, you and I know how we can both make out of this. And Yeah, yeah. yeah so no, I, I think those kinds of uh, situations are going to arise uh, to complicate things around the moment. So did you say you're going with, what was it you said you're going with, D? Or B? Well, no, D is what I said. And now I'm just thinking briefly about the <laughs> trade stuff. Do I really insist on there having no trade? Um, See, I think it could, I think a trade agreement for sure. Because, I mean, I, from what you were saying earlier, it made me think of it like an aristocratic's view of a tradesman. You know, sort of a necessary evil, right. but they're a, right. they supply us. So, right. you know, I let them in the yeah. back door. They have to only – they can only come to the tradesman entrance kind of thing. <laughs> right. But still, exactly. there's a trading agreement. Exactly, yeah. No, and I'm thinking about that more and more. I'm thinking because the, with, with, with the barrels, I think that's likely to come about. And it would – that's actually more appealing, more than like, wait, there are humans who live over there? Uh, to have the reaction be, <laughs> what, the serfs? Oh, should I pay attention to them? Uh, what, oh, the wine growers? Oh, yes, they're handy, but who cares? Um, yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> Let me look down my long, delicate elven nose out from under my uh, – <laughs> unexpectedly bushy elven eyebrows at uh, <laughs> at the human, you know, the blue-collar humans who live over there and now pretend to take them seriously. Um, yeah, th- no, that does, that that appeals much more. So yeah, no, okay, I'm, 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 I'm going to go with B then. I have, I have crafted, so you go with B. Okay. I'm going to go with B. I have, I have crafted my, my, uh, my rationale. Your justification. I'm, I'm going, I'm sticking with it. Yeah. I'm going with A. You guys have worn me out. I'm going to go with the book answer. <laughs> All right. Well, I think, Chris, I think we have to let you go, too, so we should probably... Yes, well, I, I wanted to wind up with this Tauriel thing, because uh, Michael Lucero oh, yeah. shared, and I'll share this this uh, URL when I do the post, and I'll, I'll try to get it up sooner. Um, but the, there's an article in... Um, EW.com, entertainmentweekly.com. It's a first look at Evangeline Lilly's Elf Warrior. And she, it says here, um, Tauriel isn't only a fierce warrior. She has a softer side too. Lily says she will definitely have a love story. I can't give away too much about it. It's not a huge focus, but it is there and it is important and it does drive Tauriel and her story and her actions. 
Will that romance involve Orlando Bloom's Legolas by any chance? Lily won't say definitively one way or the other, but she does offer this much. Tauriel's relationship with Legolas is significant. They've known each other since they were children, and Legolas's dad, Elven King Thranduil, has a soft spot for Tauriel and sees something very special in her. So if you grow up side by side and your dad has a very special spot in his heart for this young woman who's a fantastic warrior, I think it's hard not to notice her. Well, that's boring. <laughs> so predictable. Yeah. Anyway, I'll post. There's a, there's more in the article, but I'll just post it on the site. Yeah. As like, or actually, Michael Lucero posted it up on the uh, Tolkien Professor Facebook page. So if you want to go see it, it's there. Yeah. As 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 kind of like disturbing as the whole Kiwi Toriel concept was when we first heard about <laughs> that. Um, it's much more interesting than, <laughs> oh, this. guess what? Oh, She's in love with Legolas. Okay. I know. Or Legolas <laughs> but now, or Legolas is in love with her, and I think Brianna's right. I think Laura and I are going to have to go back and, you know, make that conundrum go both ways. Right. You know? Right. But, um, yeah. Hmm. Anyway. It is kind of boring, isn't it? It would be. That would be. If it were just about her and Legolas, that would be kind of boring. I, 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 I have to admit, I'd be disappointed. But then again, what would be the alternative? Given, as I said, it's really hard to imagine, you know, one of the only female characters in the whole cast of men right. have no romantic angle whatsoever. What are the other options? I mean, you've got, you've got Kiwi, who is obviously your leading your leading possibility among the dwarves uh and you've got legolas who else is there i mean like what yeah, I Gandalf? I plus radagast uh, sebastian who else is going to be a candidate right right for, right yeah the witch king i mean really right. um but also isn't it too tempting i mean you know having legolas be smitten and then have her buy the farm at the battle of five armies i mean you've got this tragic love story which also then explains why he's so single in Lord of the Rings. That's, I mean, I thought about that when I first heard about her. I thought, oh, it's going to be a thing with Legolas. She's going to die at the Battle of Five Armies. Very tragic. Sad, sad. Yeah. You know. No, I mean, and that could be, I, I mean, I, I say, I mean, I don't want to be too dismissive. You know, I say it's boring. In concept, it's boring. In execution, it might be very moving and everything. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it is, um, it's, uh, it's not, uh, but I mean, you know, I will of actually, course, which, of course, you know we have problems with the innovations too, like the bunny sled. Exactly, <laughs> and and also, and apart from that, apart from the fact that it seems kind of hypocritical simultaneously to complain about everything that they change and to complain about everything that's predictable, um, but nevertheless, uh, um, we I, I, it's one of my frequent uh, sayings about just about books in general. I think that people value surprise too much uh surprise yeah. and cheap thrill um doing something which is doing something well and satisfyingly which is foreseen and anticipated uh is actually i think far more powerful than you know the the little shock and thrill that comes when something unexpected happens um uh, lots of people are reeling from the ice i haven't been i have not been keeping up with the Game of Thrones miniseries, but I have been seeing in the news that the Red Wedding has finally no, happened. I have read and the Dave book. And Dave was fairly outspoken in a, a Facebook post the other day, yeah. I noticed. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> Surprisingly. the point is, was I? The point is, like, <laughs> the Red Wedding like me. was a... The, the, yeah. 
the red <laughs> wedding was, was was effective in the books, not because it was unexpected. I saw it coming up for hundreds of pages, uh, but and I was like moving. I kept rolling through that book towards it with this like this growing sense of dread. And when it happened, it was just as awful. Okay. No, it was actually slightly even more awful than I expected, but, but anyway, it's not, so it wasn't like the effect of that was not generated by shock and surprise and it's being unexpected. Um, it was, you know, the long awaited unveiling of this thing that you have been anticipating and seeing coming. And it was very effectively done better than surprise. I thought. So, um, but anyway, I, I probably should. Oh, I just had a really kind of something that James Pace put up here about a love triangle. I just had a really horrible thought. What if there's like an Arthur Guinevere Lancelot kind of thing going on with Legolas and Thranduil and Tyrion? No, nope, forget it. I'm going to edit this part out. Well, well, it wouldn't be. I mean, you know, it wouldn't be incestuous. Well, no, yeah, I but, mean, it's, it be, but, right, but still, but, between, it would be, you know, father son. Uh, rivalry between, like sexual rivalry between yeah, father and son. Yeah, or something I just, else. no, I don't like that. It's a, it, does kind of it does kind of make you want to bathe afterwards just a little bit. That is kind of but, games. Um, of, that's a little too games of throny in that. Well, it's a little too. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of <laughs> hope not. Um, I kind of hope not. Um, yeah. But I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. No, All right. I mean, well, I, I have my car keys in my hand, and I I yep. need to. I need yep. to. We should let you go. Jet, so, well, uh, thanks to everybody for joining us. And again, echoing Dave's uh, apologies at the beginning. Thank you for being patient with us. I do hope we are able to be a little bit more dependable uh, from here on out, certainly. We have um, the intention of getting better. No yes, promises, but we're exactly. intending to get better. Yeah, so we will, uh, we will, we will uh, hope not to change oh, too many times for next time. And Robert Brown wants to know when's the fall of Arthur seminar. <laughs> ah, well, there are a couple of things that I'm thinking about doing with that. Actually, I'd like to do something in the short term that would require less planning, um, uh, and then maybe do some um, something more f like a, a more formal read through and discussion later on. But I was actually that would be of fun to have kind of an like informal Q and A kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually thinking of doing something maybe over Twitter, like like to to, cool. to like you know. Because I haven't read it yet. I've been so busy with uh, with real estate and stuff that I have. I've been saving it. I haven't actually sat down and read The Fall <laughs> of Arthur because I didn't want to squeeze it into odd minutes while I was doing other things. I want to savor it. So I haven't read it yet, actually. And or, or do uh, you think you could do a do a like the Skype things you used to do way back in the old days? I might. I might do that. I might also. But I, I was I was actually kind of thinking of like live tweeting The Fall of Arthur and and inviting like. Uh, like a like a like Twitter discussion in Q and A um, at particular points, like about particular parts of the of, of the of the story, and then we could follow it up later on with a more um, a more of a class thing. Maybe I'll intersperse Q and A stuff with that. So you know th th that kind of informal thing, I'm sort of thinking, and then we'll do well. Of course, the real thing, uh, Verlin Flieger is teaching her class right. at Midgard in the fall, in which she's doing the Fall of Arthur, and she's the real expert on the Fall of Arthur. So. I, I might be an enthusiast, but she is uh, she is the genuine expert. So um, that, of course, will be the real Fall of Arthur class. But uh, but yeah, no, we'll definitely we'll, 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 we will definitely do some stuff, and it will happen relatively soon, I think. Cool. cool All right. Cool, cool. Well, thanks everybody for joining us. So thanks for listening, and Godspeed. <laughs>